fascinating that you just mentioned that because the story that I prepared has a lot to do with giving to others and how the schos, how the the uh, privilege of giving to others and doing for others ultimately results in good things for us, a, a privilege for us. So I want to tell uh, two stories tonight. The first story takes us back to the 19th century, mid-19th century. And the second story takes place at the end of the 20th century. The first story is a, a vignette or snippets of a story that was found in a manuscript, a volume of manuscript that was possessed by the Rav of Kfar Chabad, of Zalman Garelik, the first Rav of Kfar Chabad. And he had in his possession a, a book of various manuscripts, and amongst them, this story is found there. And it's a story that happened in the time of the Rebbe the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe, who was our Rebbe's namesake. And the second story I want to talk to you about, or share with you, is something that happened very much in our time. And there was a, a fascinating way in which I kind of uh, stumbled on the story, and, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to share it. So the, fir the first story goes back to the year 1853. Between the years 1853 and 1856, there was a war that was fought in Eastern Europe known as the Crimean War. Sevastopol was the center of this war, and it was fought between the soldiers of the Tsar, the Russian army, between the Ottoman Empire, who had an alliance with France, and a number of other countries. Apparently the war had something to do with, with um, Christian minorities and their rights. It, it was kind of a clash between um, the Christian world and the Muslim world uh, of the day, meaning um, what they called then Palestine, Eretz Israel, was under Ottoman control, and the bitter enemy of the Tsar, who represented the Christian minorities in Israel, was, was the Russian imperial government of the Tsar, and the uh, Sultan in Turkey, in Constantinople was uh, representing the, the, the Muslim majority that was living in Eretz Yisrael at the time. As I mentioned, as many of you know, until World War I, it was called Palestine, and it was an Ottoman uh, satellite. So this, the story is that in, in this manuscript, the teller of the story says that he happened to be in Sevastopol in 1853 on some business. And he's approached by a... Russian soldier, a soldier of the Tsar, who identifies him as Jewish, and he says to him that there's a mass grave of Russian soldiers who were recently killed in a, in a conflict, in a, in a direct conflagration. There are, this is a war that dragged on. And one of the soldiers is Jewish. And he's buried together with this, uh, a, a, whole, a very large number of Christian soldiers. And this mass grave... Is, is marked as a Christian grave, but he knows that there's a Jew who's buried there as well. And he gives him the numbers, his dog tag numbers, and he, he tells him what he looks like. So the story goes that this, uh, this uh, Yid could find no rest. The thought that uh, a fellow Jew was buried in a mass grave and didn't have a caver Yisrael gave him tremendous heartache. And he did extraordinary things including, in the end, getting permission to reopen the grave. And he found the Jewish soldier, and he identified his dog tags, and he exhumed him, and he personally oversaw that this person should come to Kaver Yisrael. 
the person was not necessarily a, a, a chassid, didn't have any previous chassidic experience, but a little while after the story, several months later, he, he had heard about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was very famous, the Tzemach Tzedek was very famous, and he somehow felt this urge that he wanted to go to Lubavitch, and he wanted to meet the Tzemach Tzedek, he wanted to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And a year later, in 1854, he actually made the journey, and he came to Lubavitch. When he comes to Lubavitch, the Tzemach Tzedek seems to have picked him out immediately. And he sent for him, and he said to him that you did something very special, he said to him. You did something very special for another Yid. And, and there's a very uh, big zechut, a great merit, which is attached to you. And because of this, the Tzemach Tzedek says, I'm going to make you an agent. I'm going to make you an emissary to carry out something extraordinary, a very, very special mission. And he says to him, you're going to meet a man whose name is Moshe Hillel, the son of Tzvi from Bialystok. And when you meet him, I want you to tell him that the answer to the question that's bothering him is found in the third section of the Zohar, Parshat Vayikra, page 13, Daf Yud Gimel. So the man was totally taken aback. He said to the Tzemach Tzedek, I don't even know why you're talking to me. I don't understand. I, I don't want to go to Bialystok. I never heard of Moshe Hillel Ben Tzvi. W what is this? And the Tzemach Tzedek said, you have a big schos. You did a big favor for another Yid. The neshama of that Yid stirred your conscience. And that's why you came here. And as a reward of what you did for this Yid, I'm providing you with another very special mitzvah. And you are going to be the one to deliver this message on my behalf. <laughs> so the man who wasn't a chassid, he said, uh, uh, you know, um, Rebbe, I'm, I'm very grateful, I'm very honored, but I, I don't know if I'm up to this. And, 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 and I'm, not, I'm not really planning to go to Bialystok. The Rebbe responded and he said, you don't have to go to Bialystok. You will be with this person. It may be in a long time from now. It may even be in the 1880s, he said to him. But you will be with this person. And when you will be with this person, Hashem will arrange it that that's the message he needs to hear. And you will tell him to look at the Zohar, the third section of the Zohar, on page 13. So the man said, Rebbe, how am I going to remember which page in the Zohar? <laughs> if you say... I don't, you don't even know when this meeting is going to happen. How will I remember that? So the Rebbe said to him, Didn't you have a bar mitzvah of your son in 1853? Tough reish yud gimel? So the man says, yes. So the Rebbe says, good. So you had a bar mitzvah in tough reish yud gimel. And tough reish yud gimel, which corresponds to 1853. So 1853, 5613, you'll remember your son's bar mitzvah is 13. In the year 5613, and you'll tell him to look on page 13. The man was very much taken aback, but he kind of accepted this. A while later, the Tzemach Tzedek sends for him again, and he speaks to him about a, a number of different mystical things, talking to him about another portion of the Zohar, another exposition of the Zohar, an exposition on the name of Moshe Rabbeinu, the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu, and Miriam and Aaron and Moshe being taken out of the water and he talks to him about three levels in water and how this corresponds to three levels in humility and three levels in Moshe. And the man is 
kind of overwhelmed by, by this, this, this profusion of Kabbalistic, mystical teaching, and he doesn't really know how to respond. And the Tzemach Tzedek sends for him a third time. And he tells him a story about a, a, a hidden tzaddik who came upon a, a forest and there was a, he fought a house and he went into this house and, and Aaron HaKohen got the first aliyah and Moshe got the, uh, Le, the Levi aliyah <laughs> and then Avram got Shlishi and Yaakov got Revi and Shlomo Amela got, got, um, got Shishi and, and Yitzchak got Shvi and then he said, and David HaMelech received Mafter, and it was Parshas Vayichi, and David HaMelech read the Mafter himself. And the Tzemach Tzedek says, and this man that you are going to deliver the message to, he was present at this mystical event. The man is totally, like, blown away by all this. He doesn't even know what to make of it. But, you know, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe tells you something, he, he kind of accepts it. He files it in some distant place in his mind. And eventually, as the years went on, it kind of drifted into a, a very, very hazy memory of the past. In 1883, which is almost 20 years after the passing of the Tzemach Tzedek, who passes in 1866, in 1883, he has a dream. In the dream, he sees the Tzemach Tzedek, and the Tzemach Tzedek says to him, it's time to fulfill the mission I gave you. You will meet Moshe Hillel ben Svi in Yerushalayim. It's time to leave Russia, to make Aliyah and go to Israel and deliver the message. So it was a very strange dream to have in 1883, and the man made nothing of it until he had the same dream the next night, and then a third night in a row. And at this point, he started to get really nervous and really anxious about this dream, and he asked for advice. And people said to him, if a tzaddik is coming to you in a dream, especially if it's three times, it's probably a good idea for you to follow through with action. Well, the man did. In 1880, 84, he made Aliyah to Israel. And he settled in Yerushalayim in 1884. He asked about, anybody know a Moshe Hillel ben Tzvi? Nobody knew a Moshe Hillel ben Tzvi? And he was really anxious now because he moved to Yerushalayim because of a dream, because of a message that ever told him, you did a mitzvah, you're getting the opportunity to deliver this message. And a, and a few weeks go by and he's getting really distraught. And one day he's sitting in one of the synagogues in the old city in Jerusalem and he hears a man being called up to the Torah and it catches his attention. Ya'amod, Reb Moshe Hillel ben Svi. So he runs over to the man after he comes down from the bima, and he says to him, Are you Moshe Hillel ben Svi? <laughs> he says, I am. He says, I have a message from you, from the Tzemach Tzedek, the Rebbe of Lubavitch. He said that the thing that's bothering you can be resolved by what's written in the Zohar, Chile Gimel, in Parshas Vayikra, on page 13. The man thanked him, he disappeared, and he never saw him again. What that was about, he never learned. But it seems that he had the privilege to deliver some kind of very important message to a hidden tzaddik at the right time, at the right place. And that the reason he'd been given this privilege was because he helped another yid. He brought a yid to Kever Yisrael. Well, now let me fast forward to the last century. 
This story actually, I discovered the story only in our century. <laughs> this is about, the, about 12 or 13 years ago. On Friday night, I'll tell you exactly when it was. It was, it was a, a summer, early summer. Early summer, about 2011. Early summer 2011, um, I, I noticed two people in Shul Friday night who I don't usually see there. Now, we don't get a big crowd on Friday night, so I, I, I usually pick out a newcomer even if he's there in the most crowded of times, but certainly on Friday night it was very obvious that these people had never been to Shul before. So, of course, as it used to be before COVID days, I went over, I gave them a warm handshake, I welcomed them to our Shul, and, and after davening, I went over and I asked them if they had... To where to be. And so we talked. They said yes. They thanked me very much. I said yes. We have where to be for Friday night dinner. And they said that they were part of something called. Uh, I think it's called Order of David. This is like a. Like almost like a. Like a Jewish version. Of the Freemasons. And that there were annual meetings. That were held for this Order of David. And that this year the annual meeting. Is being held in Toronto. I said oh that's interesting. I said where are you from? So one man identifies himself. He says uh, his name was Solomon, his last name. He said he's from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And the other fellow tells me he's from Florida, from Boca Raton. His name is Eyal Cohen. I said, oh, okay. Nice to meet you, gentlemen. I said, uh, so where are you staying? He said, oh, you know, there's uh, some people in your show, Jonathan Renee Golden. I said, yeah, I know Jonathan Renee. So he says, Renee's sister lives near us in Boca, or something like that. So somehow... They have a connection because they know Renee's sister and they were coming to Toronto and he says, and I wanted to be able to, to walk to Shul. I'm, I go to Shul every Shabbos and I was in a very severe accident. It's hard for me to walk long distances. So I needed to find a place where I could stay. All right, very nice. Nice to meet you, gentlemen. Uh, are you coming back tomorrow? They said, uh, we hope to be back tomorrow. I said, that's great. Very nice. And the next day, true to the word, they come back to Shul. And they had a very nice time. They, they enjoyed our Shul and warmth and it found it very inspirational and after the kiddush i said to them do you have where to be for shabbos afternoon lunch because i i didn't think that their hosts were having a shabbos afternoon lunch and they said actually we don't have where to be i said you're welcome to join me in my house i said we had kiddush here in shul um i have challenge you know you're welcome to come home to my house so they look at each other and said okay okay that's nice fine we'll come all right, so we sit down in my house and we, we wash for hamotzi and uh, we start the meal and uh, Eyal looks at this fellow Solomon and Solomon looks at Eyal and he says, should we tell him? <laughs> should we tell him? <laughs> I'm like, all right guys, if you wanted to make me curious, you definitely did a good job. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I have a choice now. Eyal says, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, this, and Mr. Solomon says, no, Eyal, tell him, tell him. He says, okay. All right, I'm going to tell you. I said, I said okay, tell me. So he says to me, um, I have an amazing Rebbe story. I don't tell it to anybody. I usually don't tell it, but he seemed like a nice guy, and I really enjoyed the, your sermon. I, I had a nice time at Shola. I want to tell you the story. He said, okay, tell, tell me the story. So he says to me, he says, uh, you don't know who we are, but, but I used to... I was involved in the Israeli army and, you know, security. I did some high-ranking stuff that I, I don't really talk about. 
And he said, after I retired from the army, I was working for El Al. I was a, I was a senior member of the security team in El Al. And he told me some very interesting things about how, how El Al security operates, which I'll share with you in a moment. So he tells me that there was, there was, there was a certain event. He said, of course, in every El Al flight, he says there are air marshals who are armed. And he says, and I'm one of those air marshals now, although I was like on a, a bumped up already. I was a, on a supervisor level, but even supervisors still engage in the you know everyday security they still fly in the planes so I, I, even after my promotion i was still an air marshal and he says the the el uh, security protocol is that if the air marshals are not thank you lady so he says there was a story that happened that an air marshal woke up late he slept in and because he slept in the plane refused to take off and el received an enormous fine because if you, if you don't take off on time, or when they want you to take off, they, they, they fine you. So it was, it, was a, it was a big loss for El Al. So they phased in a new rule, that the air marshals cannot rely on electric clocks anymore. They have to actually have a wind-up uh, alarm clock. You know those old-fashioned, I'm sure you all remember having those heavy, clunky uh, wind-up uh, clocks. You have to have a wind-up clock. I said, okay, that's interesting. So he says, so here I am in, um, in London, in Heathrow Airport. He says, I landed and, and I had a new next flight to be on that was like a, five and a half hours later. I was exhausted, he said. And, and I was really nervous about waking up late because they warned us and I, I, I'm staying at the hotel just near Heathrow. And of course, I wound up my clock, he says. And because it's not electric and I was used to my electric alarm clock already, he says, I, by mistake, I set the alarm clock an hour early. He says, I, I slept literally, he says, maybe two and a half, three hours. I'm, I'm exhausted, he says. And then the alarm clock is going off. So I have no choice. I have to wake up. And he says, I was just in a fog. I was in a total fog. I quickly showered. I put my stuff together. And I head off for the airport. I'm in a fog, he says. I'm, I'm literally like walking. I'm half asleep as I'm walking. And I come into Heathrow Airport. He says, this is early 80s. If, I, if my memory doesn't fail me, this is maybe like 1983 or 84. I'll soon tell you the details of the story. You can actually Google this. You can find out. You'll know exactly when it was. So he says, I'm, I'm going through security and I'm noticing that the, the two, there's two women there who are in charge of security and they're busy chatting and the stuff's going through, you know, like the, 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 the x-ray and they're not even looking at the screen. He said, they're busy talking and joking, and not, nobody's looking at the screen. He said, I saw, I saw, he says, usually they would stop me, open my bag, take on my alarm clock, it looks suspicious. It's, you know, this big clunky metal thing, and it has, it has like a, it has a mechanism inside it, a spring. He said, nobody asked me, they didn't ask me to look for the clock. So he says, in my fog, I made a mental note to myself that we have to recheck all the bags. We have to pull all the bags out, and we cannot take off until we recheck every single bag on this LL flight because the Heathrow security this morning is worthless. I make this mental note. He says, I, I come to the gate. I go running over to whoever's in charge of the flight. I said, listen. Uh, and they, why, they go, why are you here so early? And then he's, that's when he realizes that he woke up an hour early. He said, you know what? It's, it's good I'm here early because I noticed that security is not paying attention. 
We have to take all, everything off. We have to break up every suitcase. We cannot put a single suitcase on until we re-x-ray and check everyone by hand. And because he's a supervisor, they have to listen to him. And they're like, you're being silly. This is ridiculous. We're going to check every single one. He says, we're not taking off. I can't. I'm responsible for security. We're not taking off until we check everyone. Now, he tells me something interesting. He says, you know, El Al does not have any prearranged seating. I don't know if that's still the case. They don't have prearranged seating. Why is this? Because when you come to an LL flight, somebody interviews you. So they ask you all kinds of funny questions. You don't pay much attention, but they're watching you very, very carefully. And he says, every passenger on the LL flight is graded. Either you are no issue, that's you get an A, that's number one. Number two, something is wrong here. You're lying to somebody about something, you're not really suspicious. Maybe you're running away from your wife or girlfriend. I don't know what it is. Something's off. This guy is up to some kind of no good in the business. But we're not really suspicious. And then he says, this class three, the people we worry about. And he says, once we take, we divided everybody into classes, he says, the air marshal sits next to the people who are labeled number three. And he watches him the whole flight. I go, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good reason to fly LL. He says, this is how it is in LL flights. So he says, I'm, uh, we're grading, and we're looking through the names. I'm sitting with my security team, with the air marshals, and there is a woman, an Irish woman. Something's not adding up in her story. Now, here's the really funny part. You guys know I have a penchant for funny facts. Like I, I store f strange facts. I don't know why I remember certain things. So I look at him, and I say, Anne-Marie Murphy? And the guy's jaw hits the ground. He says, how do you know her name? I said, I, I don't know. Is that the story with Anne-Marie Murphy? Now, why do I know the story of Anne-Marie Murphy? I, I know the story because I remember reading a Wall Street Journal article right after 9-11 where Brett Stevens argued that all airlines now have to adopt the, the uh, mechanism and the security protocol of El Al because, in, and I remember the words he wrote, thanks to a sharp-eyed El Al security agent, Anne-Marie Murphy's bomb was discovered. Well, that's what Brett Stevens thinks, but now I'm about to hear the real story. He's like, how do you know her name? I'm sorry, I just remember reading this article and it stuck on my head. He was like flipped out from that. So he tells me, Anne-Marie Murphy is an Irish girl. She's pregnant. She says she's going, she says she's married to a Palestinian Arab and she's going, flying to Israel. We ask her where she's staying and she's staying at the Jerusalem Hilton. But he says, but there is no Hilton in Jerusalem or maybe it was the Sheraton. She said the name of a famous hotel, but there was no such hotel in Jerusalem. And she didn't have any money on her. So she said, you're, you're, you're flying to Israel. You're, they, they said to themselves, she's staying in a hotel, and they asked her like three times, which hotel? And she kept saying that name. Yeah, you have reservations? Yeah, I have reservations. It doesn't add up. She has reservations in a hotel, doesn't exist, and she doesn't have any money on her. So he said, we recheck all the bags. And we find Anne-Marie Murphy's bag. And it's, a, it's a, an expensive leather bag, very nice, expensive leather carry-on. And he says, there's nothing in it. There's a few personal artifacts. There's nothing in it. It's, it's nothing, nothing there. And he says, I pick up the bag, and it's very heavy. Oh, there was one thing in there. There was a, um, a calculator, a, uh, the, a, like a professional calculator, like a very high-grade, like a, I guess it's used by engineers. An, an, an engineering calculator. And it was just very weird that it would be there, but it was just a calculator. 
and he says, I pick up the bag, and, and, it, and he says, I didn't know if it was because I was very tired, and I was in a fog, or something was really wrong, but in my head, I said, this bag is not right. Something is off with this bag. It's too heavy. And so I threw the bag, and it, it didn't move. And we checked the bag, and we put it through the x-ray, and nothing's showing up. So, he says, uh, the guy's with me, he said, okay, let's just put the bags on out. And I, Eyal tells me, I said, no. No, something is wrong with this bag. I need to be, I need to feel good about this bag. Something's wrong with this bag. So we checked it. He says, get me a knife. He says, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to rip the bag open. He says, we're going to get hell liable. We're going to have to pay. He says, so we'll pay for a bag. He says, I can't allow this flight to take off unless I check. Something is wrong. The bottom is too heavy. Well, he rips open with a knife. They cut open the leather and they literally jump back in terror. There is several pounds of plastic explosives that were hidden in a false bottom. And there's no wires because the detonator is obviously wireless. This is the first time they found such a thing. This is very, very, very high technology. Plastic explosives and there's and there's a, a, a wireless detonator. This is 1983. It turns out, by the way, this bomb was manufactured by the, Sir the Syrian Secret Service. The Syrian government actually manufactured this bomb. The bomb was built in piecemeal in the Syrian embassy in London. And the Syrian embassy smuggled it in a diplomatic pouch to this fellow. The pieces were smuggled in diplomatic pouches. The Syrian government was directly responsible. Well, he, in Eyal's words, all hell broke loose. Scotland Yard is called. The, uh, the, 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 it, he says, you, you can't even imagine. Bells are ringing. The whole airport goes in, into lockdown. Everything goes crazy. And, uh, of course, we, they, they immediately arrest Anne-Marie Murphy. And her boyfriend, who dropped her off, they're, they're looking for him. Somehow he gets tipped off that something happened with Amory Murphy and he goes into the Syrian embassy and he's, he, found, he has now, he's being protected by the Syrian embassy. In the meantime, he says, the flight can't take off. Forget about it, he says. The Scotland Yard is looking for him for questioning. He says, the last thing I wanted to do is be questioned. They're going to find things out. So I don't, I don't remember the exact details, but somehow Eyal Cohn disappears <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, and the bottom line is they smuggle him onto the plane. Somehow, somebody gets onto the plane, and the plane does eventually take off for Israel. A full twelve hours later, a full twelve hours later. Now Ayal told me that he heard what I'm going to tell you now from Shimon Peres. He said Shimon Peres at the time occupied a senior position in the Israeli government, and he said to him because he was he was like a, rewarded or recognized by the government of Israel that if that bomb was designed to go off over Greece, which is the highest altitude, there were over 300 people on the plane, and there would have been no survivors. And he said, Israel would have been forced to declare war on Syria, because this would be an act of war. To kill 300 people, blow them out of the sky like that, would have been an act of war, and it would have been a war, he said, you should know, Ayal, you actually prevented a war from erupting in the early 80s. It actually would have been a war. This is this, this. Who knows how many lives you saved? That's what Shimon Peres told him. 
Okay, fast forward the story now, he tells me. It's, it's 1987, and he says, I'm in New York City, and I'm riding the subway. I'm on the, I'm on the number three uh, line of the subway, and I'm in, I'm, I'm in New York. I'm going to the Met. Going to the Met, and we meet some people. I meet, I meet some people, so I get into a conversation. So where are you guys going? He says, we're going to Brooklyn. He says, why are you going to Brooklyn? He says, we're going to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe gives out dollars. He says, really? You have to make an appointment? They say, no. What, anybody can just go meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe? He said, they say, yeah. And this is before the dolls were famous. The dolls had just started then. And I'm telling this to you, the dolls just started. I think it was actually in 1986. I'm telling this to you because at some point they started videoing the, all the people who went by. This is before the video started. So he says to whoever he was with, he says, we can go to the Met anytime. Let's go see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, really? He says, yeah, he's like so famous. You get a blessing? I want to go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, I don't even know why. I decided I want to go to the Rebbe. He says, I come by the Rebbe. This is a few years after the story happened. And when I come by the Rebbe, the Rebbe looks at me and he says something to the effect of, you saved many lives in the air. Hashem should save you. And he gives him an extra dollar. He says, a few months later, I was flying a private plane, a small plane in Florida, and we had a fire, and the plane fell out of the sky. He says, there was a plane crash. Till today, he says, nobody knows how I survived. He says, I landed. Literally, the plane fell out of the sky. He says, the whole bottom of my body was burned. He says, for a long time and a lot of therapy. But he says, I'm, a, I'm, I'm whole, he says. They don't know how I survived and I'm even able to walk. He says, the reason I'm in your shul is because I had this accident. It's hard for me to walk long distances. Now remember, this is quite a few years later. He says, it's hard for me to walk long distances. And, and he says, I'm, I'm, um, it's a miracle, he says. And he says, I, I guess the Rebbe's bracha, he says, that's what he says he feels me. The Rebbe's bracha saved me. And he says, how the Rebbe knew what happened, I have no idea. But the Rebbe said something, you saved others, Hashem will reward you. And he said, I feel very strongly that the privilege I had to save all those lives is why I, in turn, was saved from an aviation accident. Then he tells me, several years back, he says, he was visiting his friend, whose name is Solomon, maybe Arthur, I don't remember his first name. He's visiting his friend in, in, uh, in Charlotte. His friend lives in Charlotte. And the, the, the head shleich in Charlotte is Rabbi Yossi Groner, who was in our community a few years ago, if I bringed. And he says, and, um, and Rabbi Yossi Groner made a, a wedding, and one of his children got married. And there was a Friday night Sheva Brachot for the community. And he says, Rabbi Yossi Groner's father, Rabbi Leibah Groner, one of the Rebbe's secretaries, was actually there for Shabbos. He said, I once heard from somebody that the Rebbe said something about that El Al flight. But I never really put the pieces together. He says, I decided that I want to find out if it's true. So he said, I went over to Rabbi Groner and I said, tell me, in the year, and again, I'm th I think it was 83. Maybe I'm wrong, 83, 84. This is all Googleable. You, go all, you can find out. It's when Anne-Marie Murphy's story happened. It's in April, just before Pesach. He says, did the Rebbe say once something about a flight that wasn't going to make it to Israel on time? Rabbi Groner looks at him. He says, how would you know that? He says, I, I don't know. Somebody once told me. 
Rabbi Goran says to him, look, it's the weirdest story. Till today, I don't know what it means, but there was, the Rebbe used to send matzah to many Jewish communities. So he would distribute matzah Erev Pesach for communities that were more local, but communities that were further away, the Rebbe would send matzah to be distributed uh, earlier. And it, there would be, that every year the Rebbe would send matzah boxes, large, big boxes of matzah to Eretz Yisrael to be distributed to anybody who wanted a piece of matzah from the Rebbe. So he said, the Hasidim came after Mincha. The Shluchim came to get the matzah. And it was, they were running late. The schedule was late. By the time they got to Kennedy Airport, they had missed the flight. The flight was a stopover flight. They were stopping over in London. And the flight then was from London going to Eretzisor. So they were very distraught. It's just a few days before Pesach. And they called Rabbi Groner's office and they said... We missed the flight. We missed the flight. What should we do? So they said, there's another flight that's leaving in nine hours, but it's a direct flight. So Rabbi Groner went into the Rebbe's office, and the Rebbe was in the midst of doing something. He looked up, and he gave him this information, and the Rebbe said, the second flight will get there before the first flight anyway. Let them take the second flight. And he says, Rabbi Groner says, I have no idea what that means, but that's what the Rebbe said. Well, turns out the first flight was the stopover in London that Eyal found the bomb on. And that flight, of course, got to London many, many, many hours after the other flight that had left Kennedy Airport much, much later than the first flight. Anyway, this is the story that I heard from Eyal Cohen himself uh, at the, on that, uh, that Shabbos afternoon. And, uh, you know, Howard, you talked about how the notion of doing for somebody else is actually, it's a matana. We're not giving charity. We're not, not, it's not a demeaning thing. When we give to somebody else, it's a gift. It's a gift for us also. The greatest privilege is to be able to give something for somebody else. The greatest privilege in life is to be able to do something for somebody else. And in the end, when we give to others, and when we do for others, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives to and does for us. So we should all be inspired to do for others. And Hashem should help us, that we should all be blessed. We go off of uh, coming off Parsha Zachar, Will we remember the notion of Amalek? And as I talked about this morning, it, it means the notion of being ashakarcha, being cool and dispassionate, and not to get excited about Yiddishkeit or miracle stories or things like that. Um, we should be excited. We should be exuberant. We should be enthusiastic about a Yiddishkeit. We should be warm and passionate about everything that we do. And Kaddish Baruch Hu should help us, Amir Hashem, that it should be a Freilich Purim for us. Uh, for all of Am Yisrael and Emir Hashem, we should merit to see Sha'asa Nisim that that Hashem would Nisim miracles for our ancestors in this time. That now it should be not only commemorative, but we should actually see the miracles unfold in our time. Purim is really a a year of this Corona craziness, a year of disruption a year of frustration, a year of difficulty that everybody has endured on different levels. So our Kaddish Baruch should help us that as the year is over, that the, the difficulty should end, the challenges should end, the disruption should end, the illness should end, there should be good health and good news, and we should be zeichem Hashem to the coming of Mashiach, and the final Geula, Amitas V'Ashlema, Demheira, will be Amenu. Amen. Shavuot everybody. A good a and we should meet 
The Simchas, and here we share only goodness.